When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, dear listeners. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I'm Liv, the woman who kind of wishes she'd spent a bit more time thinking of podcast names before putting it out into the world. I mean, is the title kind of fun? Sure. Is it also really annoying and somewhat embarrassing to tell people when they ask? Also, yes. Was it kind of weird to have to say the whole thing while not singing, because that would be even weirder, at a recent wedding and rehearsal dinner I went to? Absolutely. 
Anyway, it's too late now, but that doesn't mean I can't dwell on my poor choices every now and then. Thank you all for your patience with the re-aired episode last week. I've just been completely exhausted lately and in need of some time to really decompress. Last week on my one day off, I recorded two episodes with the amazing Emily Edwards of Fuckboys of Literature, and it was so much fun. You should absolutely go subscribe to her show because it's all very fun and very in line with what I do here, but also because in a short while there will be an episode where she and I discuss Jane Eyre, and oh, was it fun to record. And at the same time, we recorded a kind of crossover episode that will be in this feed later in the month. Anyway, that's all to say, I had just one day off last week and needed to relax, but I'm so happy to say that I now have three days off in a row. I know that doesn't sound so crazy, it seems kind of normal often, but this is the first time in months where I've had that many days and all I have to do is the podcast. I don't have to move or travel to another country or whatever other bullshit I had going on. No, now I can just prep the show and also write those books I've been talking about for literally ever. But enough about me, that was so much. What we're really here for is Odysseus. Oh, you guys, we're back in it. The fucking Odyssey. Odysseus, my main man, my favorite dude. We're back with him once again, and oh, how shit is going to go down. Where'd we last leave him? What is it, a cliffhanger? Oh, I like to think so. Odysseus and Telemachus had planned the murder of all the suitors. The suitors had finally left for the night. They're sleeping their last nights on Earth. And Odysseus, well, Odysseus, who is still disguised as this ragged old man with nowhere to go, he's about to meet with Penelope. Penelope, his wife, who he hasn't spoken with in two decades. He's about to see her and, disguised as this old man, he's going to tell her what he knows about her husband, Odysseus. It's all a bit convoluted, not helped by the fact that Odysseus hasn't given himself a fake name or anything, so we know he's Odysseus, but no one else in the story except Telemachus knows he's Odysseus. They just know him as apparently this nameless, ragged old man who's pretty smart and cunning and happens to know a lot about the real Odysseus, the one who never returned from the Trojan War, who's been missing in action for 10 years, gone from Ithaca for 20. What a weird coincidence that this man with a similar personality type would just appear without a name. This is episode 58, Penelope, a cunning woman surviving in a man's world, The Odyssey, part 11. Sing muses of fucking fed up Penelope. Odysseus waits in the now empty hall of the palace of Ithaca for Penelope to join him. First, she arrives in the hall and gets herself comfortable before inviting him to join her. She sits in front of the fire, her usual chair, with a plush footstool, blanket wrapped around her, while her slave girls take away the empty glasses and dishes that the suitors had been using for dinner. Odysseus, meanwhile, is in the room waiting on Penelope, but before he has a chance to speak with her, Melantho, the slave girl to Penelope, who we just learned had been sleeping with Eurymachus, begins to berate Odysseus. She asks him why he's still there. Is he going to keep being a nuisance, roaming around their home? Get out, you tramp, she yells at him. Be happy with the meal you've been given and get lost. 
Odysseus is angry at this outburst, but he thinks before he speaks. Why are you mad at me? He asks. Is it because I'm in rags, dirty and without a home? I don't have a choice in that, he says. I used to have a home, used to be rich and respectable, and it was me who gave the beggars of the town food. I helped whoever came to me, homeless or not, but Zeus ruined it. You should watch yourself and the things you say. If you anger your mistress, or if Odysseus ever comes home, you might find yourself in trouble. But he doesn't have to continue, because Penelope speaks up now. She's heard Melantho too, and she's not happy about it. I see what you're doing, she tells Melantho. What nerve you have. I told you quite specifically that I wanted to speak with this stranger and that he should be allowed to remain in the hall so I could ask him about my husband. At this, she turns to another girl, asking her to bring out a chair for Odysseus so she can finally ask him her questions. With Odysseus now comfortable, Penelope begins to ask her questions. She starts by asking him where he comes from, to what people he belongs. And Odysseus responds by, well, flattering the absolute fuck out of Penelope. Like, for real. He tells her her glory reaches heaven, that she must be the daughter of a great king with good laws that made his land flourish. And he goes into detail about the levels of flourishing, but I'll spare you. He tells her this is her house and that she has the right to question him, but that she shouldn't ask about his family, that it would hurt too much for him to tell her that he's a man of sorrow. I can't tell if this is because he's just over-telling the endless stories he's made up in absurd detail, or if this is just the one person he doesn't want to lie to like that. I really want to think it's the latter, because that's lovely. He's lied his goddamn ass off to just about everyone, but he seems to not be able to lie to Penelope. Not to mention it's often made clear that she's just as cunning as him. Maybe he's worried she'd catch him in the lie. Penelope is one of the few Greek mythological women who isn't a goddess, but who's treated as a near-intellectual equal to her husband. Like, if not completely equal. It's fucking refreshing. So Penelope accepts this, that she can ask about his family, and instead tells him about herself. She reiterates that her strength and beauty have been destroyed ever since that Trojan War caused her to lose her husband. I might regain it if he returns, she says, but for now I'm miserable. These suitors constantly vying for my attention. They're rude, obnoxious. They're eating me out of house and home. She tells the stranger all about these trials with the suitors, how awful they are, how they won't leave her alone, all for wanting to marry her. I miss Odysseus, she tells him, but the suitors want to push me into another marriage. Penelope tells Odysseus about her efforts to keep them at bay, about how she once convinced them, for a time, to postpone those attempts at marriage while she wove a burial shroud for Laertes, Odysseus's father, for when he dies. They agreed, she explains. By day I would weave the shroud, and by night I would unweave it. It worked for years, she tells him, until finally they caught her with the help of her slave girls who'd been completely won over by the awful suitors. I have no more ideas, she says. I can't prevent them from forcing marriage on me any longer. With a pause, she asks him again, Now, won't you tell me about your ancestry? Oh, won't you stop asking about my family? Odysseus says. 
with a sigh. He tells her he'll speak if he must, but that it would make his troubles far worse. Then, in the end, he tells her his lie, completely destroying my theory that he was doing it because he couldn't lie to her or that she'd catch him. But whatever, I'm leaving it in. Odysseus tells Penelope that his homeland is in Crete. He tells her what languages they speak. He tells her about the city of Knossos, where Minos was king. He tells her, quite boldly, that his father was Deucalion, the son of Minos, and whose other son was Indomenius. It seems risky to associate himself with real people who lived, but then Odysseus is Odysseus. He's a risky guy. My name is Athon, he says, doing something he should have done forever ago, because why didn't he tell anybody a fake name, like, immediately when he arrived and started with all the lies? Did I miss it? Was I too worked up in Odysseus's story to notice that he'd already given a name? If he did, they certainly weren't using it. Anyway, whatever, he's done it now. He's Athon, he says, and he never mentions it again. And then he tells her that in Crete he saw Odysseus, her husband, when he was on his way to Troy in the first place, and that he'd given him gifts. A storm had driven him off course, but he'd landed on Crete and asked to see Indomenius, a friend of his, but Indomenius was already in Troy, and while they stayed for some time, Odysseus and his men then finally sailed away into Troy. Odysseus tells his lies to Penelope, making up an entire story about his background and how he knows of Odysseus himself, and... Well, again, destroying my earlier theory that he couldn't lie or didn't want to lie, and Penelope believes him completely. Of course, she probably wants to, too. She wants to know where her husband was, that he was alive. She wants to know anything she can about him after he left her in Ithaca all those years ago. She cries and cries as she hears this story about her husband, and next to her, Odysseus feels the full weight of his lie. He feels awful for it. But he knows what he has to do, at least for now. Stranger, she finally says, I'd like to test you, to make sure you did indeed meet my husband, that you really did know him, however briefly. And so she asks him to describe Odysseus, what he did and what his men looked like. Oh, my lady, he says, pretending. It's so hard to say. It was so long ago. Odysseus feigns thinking. Fane's racking his brain trying to remember what he could have looked like all those twenty years ago. Finally, he tells her, Odysseus wore a purple cloak, fastened by a golden brooch. It was shaped like a dog, he says, holding a fawn. It looked so real, everyone commented on how you could almost see the animals moving, though it was solid gold. He continues to describe Odysseus, his clothes, in great detail. He tells her he gave him a sword and more clothes to take with him. He tells her about a man Odysseus had with him, his name, his age, what he looked like. Penelope, meanwhile, is barely holding herself together. The more Odysseus, as this stranger speaks, telling him about her long-lost husband, the more real it becomes. This man did see him, did speak to him and give him gifts. I gave those clothes to him myself. Penelope tells the stranger, I fastened that brooch myself. (music) 
With tears in her eyes, Penelope tells this strange man that the evidence he's just provided about her beloved Odysseus has proven it to her. Now, she says, you are a guest of honor. I gave him those clothes before he left. I fastened that brooch and kissed him goodbye. But now I'll never see him return to his home and to me. Don't cry, Odysseus in disguise tells Penelope. You mourn for your husband as anyone would, but don't mourn any more. I heard he's coming home. He's alive. He's not far away. He's bringing home treasure, though he lost his ship in the voyage. Odysseus, though still very much not outwardly Odysseus, tells Penelope some of what her husband experienced. How Zeus and Helios got him into trouble. How many of his men drowned at sea how he landed on the land of the Phaeacians and how they honored him, gave him gifts, and finally sent him on his way home. He doesn't, however, tell her about Calypso or Circe, probably for the best. If anyone's going to tell her, it probably should be Odysseus, but like when she knows it's Odysseus, you know? The stranger tells Penelope that Odysseus is on his way, but that he stopped by Dodona to ask Zeus whether he should return home as himself or in disguise. He's safe, he assures Penelope. He won't be much longer. I swear by Zeus and by this hearth you're welcoming me to. I swear that Odysseus is on his way back to you and to his home. This stranger has sworn it to Penelope that Odysseus will return, and soon. Oh, I hope you're right, Penelope tells the stranger. If you are, I'll give you all the rewards you could possibly imagine. But, she says, from what I can tell, it doesn't seem like Odysseus will come home. There's no master here. Was there ever? she asks, sadly. Penelope's finished with this. She doesn't want to hear any more about her husband. She can't bring herself to believe he will indeed come home after all this time. It just seems so unlikely. It's been too long. There's just no way. So she tells her slaves to give this stranger a bath and a nice bed to sleep in with warm blankets. In the morning, he can sit next to Telemachus and eat all he wants. But Odysseus tells her no. He doesn't want or need that. He's too used to living on nothing, with no comforts. No, he says, just give me a pallet to sleep on while I wait for morning. I don't want these slave women you have bathing me. I don't trust them. Unless, he says, you have an older woman here, one who's been with your house for a long time and who's well trusted. She I would permit to help me bathe. Odysseus is sneaky and smart, and oh, Penelope helps him along. Stranger, she says, I won't permit you to go without a bath in my house. We treat guests better than that. We have a sensible old woman here. She brought up my husband, Odysseus, those long years ago. She was with him from the time he was only a newborn baby. Of course, this is what Odysseus wants. Eurycleia, Penelope calls, would you wash this man's feet? He must be the same age as Odysseus, she says almost to herself now. He probably has aged, wrinkled hands and feet like this now. We mortals age more when we're in times of trouble. Eurycleia, the woman who nursed Odysseus as a baby and stayed with his household all these years, 
takes aside this stranger to wash his feet like Penelope asked of her. She calls out, seemingly half to Odysseus and half to the stranger in front of her. Zeus hated you most of all, she says, though you sacrificed all you could and feared him. You hoped to reach old age at home, raising your son. Now you'll never reach it. You, she says, now addressing the stranger more directly, you refused to have Penelope's slave women wash your feet. You didn't want their abuse? Penelope asked me to, and though reluctantly, I will. I've seen so many strangers here over these years, but none, she tells this stranger, have so much resembled my master, in body, voice, even feet. Oh, the stranger that is, Odysseus replies kindly, so many people have commented on our resemblance, you're very perceptive to have noticed. Eurycleia prepares to give the stranger a wash by the hearth, and just as she's about to touch him, Odysseus realizes there's a scar that's going to give him away. And only moments later, Eurycleia reaches the spot where he has this scar. He had traveled to Mount Parnassus so long ago and had been wounded by a white-tusked boar. And so he has a scar, a very memorable scar. When Eurycleia sees the scar, she gasps, dropping Odysseus's leg into the basin of water below. It loses balance, clatters, and the water pours out and onto the floor. But she doesn't even notice. Eurycleia has tears filling her eyes. She's full of joy and grief, and she reaches up to grasp Odysseus by the chin, holding on to his thick beard. You are Odysseus, she calls out. Eurycleia turns to Penelope, who's nearby but not close enough to have heard. But Penelope won't look at her, won't hear her words. Athena has distracted her, just long enough for Odysseus to grab Eurycleia and tell her that she mustn't tell Penelope who he is. Not yet. Nanny, he calls her. After all these twenty years, I've arrived home and you've found me out. But you can't tell anyone here. You must keep silent. If you don't, he says, I promise that if some god helps me take down these suitors, I won't spare you, even though you were my nurse as a baby. I think this is a bit of an overreaction on the part of Odysseus, but what do I know? I mean, he definitely could have asked her nicely not to tell, explaining why it was important without straight up threatening to kill her when all she wanted to do was give the news to his wife that her husband is home after all this time. Anyway, Odysseus is my main man, but he can be a dick sometimes like everybody else. Eurycleia listens to Odysseus's pointlessly mean threat and tells him that he can trust her, and that if he does manage to kill the suitors, she'll tell him which women were working in the palace were loyal to him and which had sided with the suitors. Odysseus turns this down, though. A little bit of toxic masculinity coming through. He tells her he doesn't need her to tell him which woman is free of guilt. He'll determine it on his own, as if he knows simply because he's a big, strong man out to kill the suitors. Eurycleia does as she's told. She gets more water and finishes bathing Odysseus's feet before covering up his scar and returning him to sit next to Penelope. Before you go to sleep, stranger, Penelope calls out, I must tell you that every night I lie awake in grief and pain. You must help me, she asks him. Should I remain in this house with my son, holding out against the suitors and staying loyal to my husband, who's never returned and is probably long dead? Or should I finally marry one of these suitors? When my son was young, she tells him, I couldn't bear to think about leaving my husband's home. 
but now he's grown and urging me to go to pick one so the suitors will finally leave and without having eaten up everything Ithaca has. I've had a dream, she tells him, that there were geese eating everything in my home and that an eagle flew down and killed them all. I cried and cried, but then the eagle returned and spoke to me. He told me, this is no dream, it will come true, and the geese are suitors, and the eagle is my husband, Odysseus. Odysseus tells her that the dream seems obvious, that it surely means that Odysseus will return to fulfill it, that it means death for all the suitors. But Penelope is no dummy. She tells the stranger that sure, it seems obvious, but dreams are not what they seem, and they don't all come true. No, she tells him, the day is coming that will force me to leave my house. I'll arrange a contest, she tells him. Whoever wins will win me. With a smirk, Odysseus tells her that she mustn't postpone this contest. The suitors won't be able to string a bow or shoot an arrow before Odysseus returns home, he tells her. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. 
find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That night, Odysseus doesn't sleep. He plots. He plots how he'll kill the suitors, and his plotting only gets more righteous when he overhears some of the slave girls the ones who've changed their allegiances to the suitors instead of the family. They're giggling together after leaving the suitors' bedroom. As he lies awake, Athena comes to him. She reassures him that all will be well, he'll be successful in his plan, and she pours sleep on him so Odysseus can finally get some rest before the dawn arrives. Meanwhile, Penelope can't sleep either. She calls out to Artemis, asking her to shoot her dead right now, so that she doesn't have to degrade herself by marrying a lesser man to her beloved husband, Odysseus. Odysseus wakes to the sounds of Penelope's crying, though she's nowhere near him. It's a sign, Odysseus knows, and so he asks Zeus to confirm that he is really home for this reason, to get rid of the suitors. Thunder sounds outside, though there isn't a cloud in the sky. Zeus confirming this for Odysseus. And nearby, the slaves working in the kitchen, they too hear the thunder boom in a cloudless sky, and they too understand the omen within it. One of them calls up to Zeus himself, hoping that it's a sign for someone nearby, someone who's come to fulfill all their prayers to make it the last day that the suitors dine in style. The slaves are tired of feeding them, of dealing with their awful behavior, Everyone is tired of these suitors. Now over the next few pages, I'll be honest, there's really just a lot of unsubtle suggestions about how glad so many of the people in the palace will be when Odysseus returns. There's also some indications on who Odysseus will choose to save and who he'll kill along with the suitors. There's one guy, working for the palace, who insults the stranger Odysseus, just as the suitors did, telling him to stop begging and get out of there. So, you know, he's done. And then there's another guy working for the palace. This guy handles some cows. He goes on and on about how much he loves and misses his master, Odysseus, and how he's thought about leaving because of the suitors, but the Telemachus is there, so he hasn't left. And of course, stranger Odysseus here, he's all, Hey man, I promise you, Odysseus will come back and the suitors will be murdered. It's all very obvious, but seems like it's trying not to be? Anyway, I won't bore you all by retelling these bits in too much detail. There's a lot of them. There's even a hot minute spent on the suitors planning to kill Telemachus again before an eagle flies over, holding a dove, which they decide is obviously a sign from Zeus, so they drop the plan in an instant, saying instead that they'll think about the feast. Priorities. And so they feast. 
the suitors Telemachus, Odysseus, and again it goes on. The suitors keep being little shits, making Odysseus hate them even more. It goes on. It goes on and on until one of the suitors speaks up to really hit home the whole they think Odysseus isn't coming home even though he's standing right there thing. This suitor tells Telemachus, look, it's clear now that your dad isn't coming back. You waited and waited and that's fine, but now it's obvious he won't be coming home. So go talk to your mom, tell her to choose one of us just to get it over with. Tell her to choose someone so that she can move into their house and you can have the palace all to yourself. With a very forced sigh, Telemachus agrees with this suitor. I like to think he's being real over the top dramatic with this just because he knows the truth, but he's probably a good liar like his father. You're right, he tells the suitor. My father is lost or maybe dead. I'll tell her right away to pick a husband. But I won't force her to leave this house, he says, not if she doesn't want to go. This, we're told, is when Athena turns the minds of the suitors. They begin laughing, laughing uncontrollably, frantically. Their eyes fill with tears. They begin to cry out as they lose control of their faces. At this, the prophet in the room, because there's a prophet in the room, calls out to them, asking what is happening. He tells them that their bodies are wrapped up in night, their screams blazing out like fire. The room is splattered with your blood. Outside of the palace is full of ghosts, ghosts traveling to the underworld. The sun is gone, mist has covered everything. At this They only laugh more. This man is crazy, they say. Throw him out of the palace. He isn't making any sense. Whatever you say, the prophet replies. I have eyes and ears, and I've seen what I've seen and heard what I've heard. There's evil coming for you all, he says, quite dramatically, before leaving the palace. When the prophet is left, the same suitor who'd kicked him out turns to Telemachus. What luck you have with guests, he says. One is a dirty beggar taking your food and wine, the other prophesying madness. I've got a plan for all these people hounding the palace, he tells Telemachus. You should pack them all up, sell them as slaves, make some money off of it, he finishes with a laugh. The suitors, I say again, are a lovely group of guys, just good people, definitely not pretty deserving of what Odysseus is about to do. Well, guys, thank you all for listening. We're creeping towards the end of the Odyssey. Now, I'll be honest with you all. I last read this quite a few years ago. So while I know what's going to happen as I read it, writing these episodes, I often forget how drawn out certain things are. I've been prepared to write the episode where Odysseus kills everyone for like three episodes now. And every time there's enough further story and information to make up an entire episode before we even get to the death of a single suitor. I've even had the episode title picked out for weeks. Anyway, next week, hell of a lot of bloodshed. And I know I said that last time, but again, I've been bad at predicting these things. Homer just has so much to say. And that's with me cutting out a ton of extraneous nonsense. Though there's less nonsense in this than in the Iliad. Far fewer crazy similes that go on for pages and pages and pages. So that's something. 
Again, thank you all for listening and for your patience as I sometimes have to re-air old episodes when I simply can't manage to find the time to write a new one. I'm making a real effort to make it as rare as possible, but sometimes, you know, I'm one person and just too many life things come up. You know, you understand. Anyway, I'm working on something special for my beloved patrons on Patreon to make up for the lack of posts in August. There should be something exciting coming soon and then those regular episodes coming frequently. Well, you're all the best. I've had a number of amazing listeners order in books on magic, witchcraft, and the like in ancient Greece. So when those arrive, I should be able to start on some episodes. Thank you all for the support. It truly means the whole world to me and helps me continue making this show. If I didn't have you all, there's no way I could manage. Thank you so much. I'm Liv and I love this shit. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. 
join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.